Amen. God's mercy is more. We praise him for that this morning. Because his mercy is so great, he's given us the invitation to come before him with our needs and to cast our burdens on him. As we gather as a body, we want to do that corporately. We want to together direct our hearts and our prayers to some of the needs that our body is facing right now. So if you would, let's just take another minute now to bow our heads in prayer and ask for God's work in our midst today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we, we thank you that you are a good father, that you invite us to come to you with our needs. Father, we, we praise you for Christ, who is our head, who desires that his body brings our needs to him. And so today, God, we pray on behalf of our children who are in our church, some of our children who are here in this service, God. Father, we pray that you would work in our children's lives to give them an understanding of the gospel. We pray that you would help our children to understand what Jesus has done for them. Father, Father we also pray for the parents that are in our church this morning. Father, would you help us as parents to, to raise our children faithfully in Christ, to not only teach them how to obey, but also teach them of the good grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. May, may this shape our homes, we pray. Father, I, I come before you and we together pray for any visitors that have come into this church this morning. Father, we know that many come into this church with burdens and anxieties. Many come with doubts about you and even feelings of shame. Father, would you even now just reveal yourself to those who are doubting today? Father, would you comfort those who need comfort today? Father, would you give repentance to those who are stuck in sin today, we pray. Father, we also pray for the members of our church body, and we, we thank you for the new members that we uh, welcomed in last week at our members meeting. Father, we pray now that you would build them up in Christ, and that you'd keep them faithful to the final day. Father, we pray for Carolyn and Leon and Carol and Sandra and Joes and Allie. Father, help them to experience true fellowship in our body. Help our body to grow in love together, we pray. And now, Father, we, we turn to your word. God, we want to hear from your word right now. We want to open your word and, and to listen to you speak. So, Father, we pray that you would speak. Father, you see my weaknesses, and I ask that you would work through me despite my weaknesses. Father, I pray that your word would be clear and that we would be transformed as we worship even now in listening to your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, what does it look like to lead a life that is trusting in God to supply all of your needs? What does that look like? George Mueller is a name that some of you may know. 
Mueller was a British pastor who lived from 1805 to 1898 and whose life was just sold out to Jesus Christ. Mueller loved his Bible dearly. He read it over 200 times cover to cover throughout his life. He pastored one church for 66 years with a break for a missionary trip. For many of those years, he preached three times a week, preaching over 10,000 sermons. Get this, this is crazy. He took a break from pastoring his church when he was 70 years old. At the age of 70, he pursued his lifelong dream of becoming a missionary. And he spent 17 years traveling to 42 different countries, preaching almost daily the gospel. And then at 87, he returned back to England to begin pastoring again. How's that for retirement? He's perhaps best known for his orphan care and helping to set up orphan homes. He reports in his own words that he was motivated to build orphanages so that God may be glorified in being seen that it is not a vain thing to trust in God. He developed five large orphan homes and he cared for 10,024 orphans in his lifetime. He was driven by a trust in God to supply his needs. Listen to just one story among many. If you were to read his autobiography or a biography about his life, listen to this story of God's provision in Mueller's life. He writes, one morning, all the plates and the cups and the bowls on the table at the orphanage were empty. There was no food in the larder and no money to buy food. The children were standing, waiting for their morning meal when Mueller said, children, you know we must be in time for school. Then lifting up his hands, he prayed, dear father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. There was a knock at the door. The baker stood there and said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread, and I have brought it for you. Mr. Mueller thanked the baker, and no sooner had he left when there was a second knock at the door. It was the milkman. He announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage, and he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so that he could empty his wagon and repair it. One biographer summarized Mueller's repeated refrain well. He said, the orphan houses existed to display that God can be trusted and to encourage believers to take him at his word. George Mueller lived a life that was content in Christ. He found his happiness not in what he owned, but in who owned him. George Mueller was an example of, of partnership in Christ. He modeled giving and receiving, partnering in the work of the gospel. And now, if you're like me, and you hear a story like this, you might be tempted to think that George Mueller is in a class all by his own. 
my weak attempts to trust God and to rest in his provision and his plan for me just fail in comparison to this story of this man. But then we come to the word of God. And we come to this final chapter in the letter to the Philippian church. And we realize that by God's design, this chapter was not merely meant for George Mueller, but was meant for you and I to learn about what it means to place our contentment in Jesus Christ. Our passage today explores two fundamental ideas as Paul closes his letter, and they have potential to change our lives in the way that we rely on Christ. We see these ideas of contentment and partnership together. So listen and follow along as I read chapter 4, verses 10 through 23 of the book of Philippians. We read there, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So if you're taking notes, I have two points this morning, which will simply explain what I believe that the text is just teaching. And as I walk through these points, you'll learn from the Bible better for yourself if you just have your Bible open and you just follow along with me as I talk through the text so that you can see that what I'm saying is just really what's written here in Scripture. Here's my two points. Number one, the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment. Number two, the fruit of partnership the fruit of partnership. I pray that as we study this passage together, our church will grow in satisfaction in God and in our cooperation in the gospel. So point number one, the secret of contentment. In verse 10, Paul had reaches his conclusion to this letter, and he's happy for the church's concern for him. After a delay, the church had revived their concern about Paul, and they were ready 
to give, to help his work. Now, he, he acknowledges this delay. It's been a, a long time. But notice, he, he wants to speak carefully, so he immediately qualifies what he says. He doesn't want them to misunderstand and think that he's critiquing them. So he says, you were indeed concerned about me, but you had no opportunity. And then in verse 11, he, he clarifies again. He's rejoicing for their help, but he wants them to know that he's rejoicing not because he needed money. His joy isn't about the money he's getting. He's not speaking about being in need. So picture him there. He's, he's writing this letter from prison and he's sending it off to this church. And, and just to prove that he's not really writing because he's excited about the money that they're giving to help him, Paul stops and he teaches us something about the first topic of this passage. That is, verses 11, 12, and 13, he teaches us about the secret of contentment. Okay, so what does it mean to be content? What is contentment? Here's a, a definition from uh, Jeremiah Burroughs. The Puritan, he, he writes it this way. He says, contentment is the inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. So this is very different from what our world would think when they think of contentment. It's not just learning to just be okay with the things we have or viewing the glasses as half full or focusing on what you do have and then just moving on. No, Burroughs is saying that Christian contentment is different because it placed its faith, its rest somewhere. Let me summarize what he's saying. We could say that contentment is resting in submission to what God chooses to give you. Contentment is resting in submission to what God chooses to give you. It's the peace that you find when you are finding your satisfaction in God. Friends, this can apply to just so many areas of our lives, can it? Uh, this might apply to the money that God has given you or to the possessions that you have. I think that's probably where we all think of first. It might apply to the abilities that God has given you or the way that your body looks or the health that God has given your body or the personality that God has made you with. It might apply to the family that he's given you. You fill in the blank. Contentment, according to this passage we're going to see, is a resting in submission to what God has given you in your life. Now, by the way, I'm, I'm not saying that, as we'll see later in the text, that this means that we don't ever act or we don't seek to change things. But underneath that acting, underneath the work that you do tomorrow to get more money to provide for your family, or whatever you do to improve your health. Underneath all that is a resting spirit. It's a, a readiness to submit to what God is giving you in, his, in your life. You are content. And so look at how comprehensive this is for Paul. Verse 12, he says, he is content in whatever situation. Verse, sorry, that's verse 11, rather. Verse 12, he then goes on to say, that this is in any and every circumstance. 
So this isn't just on good days or when you got a good night's sleep last night. No, this is in every circumstance of your life. And not only that, Paul says he is content in good times and bad times. Look at verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So he, he gives us two contrasts in our lives. First, he says, he, he knows how to abound or to face plenty or to face abundance. These are all synonyms, right? Paul says that he's able to live in plenty. Now, for, for reference here, likely he's referring to what will come in verse 18, that he's been well supplied as a missionary. So I don't think we should think luxury by today's standards, but we should think of a, of a missionary who was serving and had everything he needed to serve. But still, why is it that Paul mentions that he learned how to face plenty? I'm guessing most of us here today would not say we needed to learn to face plenty or abundance or how to abound. We would say, Lord, anytime you want to give me plenty, I'm ready to be content with it, right? Who wouldn't naturally want more abundance from God? Okay, friends, the biblical view of wealth, though, just challenges us on this. Because the, the biblical view of riches is that while it is a blessing to have God provide for our needs, material abundance is often a dangerous trial. It's a test of your faith. It's the, it's the rich young ruler who walks away from Christ, who can't let go of his abundance. It's Jesus who says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the rich in this present age who Paul says need to guard themselves from placing their hopes in the uncertainty of riches. Paul must learn to be content in times of abundance because while wealth is not inherently wrong, riches are dangerous. Christ-centered contentment in times of abundance is difficult. But then Paul also points to hardship. He says he knows how to be brought low or to face hunger or to face need. To be brought low here literally means to be humbled. It actually implies poverty. Paul says he's learned to be content even when he has next to nothing. You know, uh, six and a half years ago, my, my wife and I, we were living in the Middle East, and we took a new role and moved into a low-income ghetto in the Middle East. And I remember early in our time there, with, in one visit, going uh, with a friend to a difficult neighborhood, a rather poor neighborhood. And he was honored to just have our, our young family over for dinner. And his family laid out a well-worn tablecloth on the floor of their small living room. 
and we knelt on the floor and we began to eat the, the kind meal that they brought us. And as we ate, it became clear that most of the family wasn't eating. And, and my friend was only eating a, a small side dish to eat along with me. And the, the more expensive meat that they had bought and the, the main dishes were left for us, for me to eat. And then when we finished, our, our food was collected. And, and the children and aunts gathered in the kitchen and they ate what was left over off of my plate. Now, over the following years, this scene became not uncommon. This is what we, we lived in and around day in and day out for years. Many households we visit, uh, visited and, and families we knew lived at this type of level. And, and as you hear me describe this, I'm, I'm guessing you might be wondering what your contentment would look like if you were living with little, or with hunger, or with need. You may be thinking, if that were me, would I be willing and ready to be content? But, but I'm wondering, what does your contentment look like now, in the here and now? with whatever situation you are facing today in your lives? What things are you tempted to wish God would give you? If God would only give me blank, I would be more satisfied. You fill in the blank of that sentence and you'll see there's the area that you risk discontentment. If I only had what? Paul, rests in what God chooses to give him. Because for Paul, remember, to live is Christ. He is satisfied in God regardless of whatever he is lacking. So maybe you're listening to me talk about this and you, you start to feel a little bit discouraged. I, I understand what you're saying, Jeff, but this is hard. I'm not good at this. Well, Paul's words should encourage us now on two fronts. First, be encouraged because, he says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Or verse 12, again, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. This, this word, to learn, emphasizes the process of being taught something. It's a process. The idea is that we as Christians, we're in the classroom of life, and God is teaching us. And contentment, resting in submission to God and what he chooses to give you, is a process for us to learn. Is it not? It just as an assignment, just find any older brother or sister who's just been walking with the Lord for several decades. Invite them to lunch today, or next Sunday if you're busy today. And just listen to their journey. Just ask them, has it been a journey for you to just rest in God for what he gives you? And listen to how the decades of following after God just have played out for them as they have learned step by step to rest in God. Secondly, you should be encouraged because of how this contentment happens. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. So what is Paul's secret that he's learned? We see that word, we should wonder, what's the secret? What have you got? 
What have you learned? You say you know how. How is it that this happens? How can we be content? Look at verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He does this through him. And for those of us who have been reading Philippians, we're not surprised that he got back to Jesus. He does this through Christ. And by the way, once again, there's this this beautiful interplay between what Christ is doing and what Paul is doing, again, in the book of Philippians. Yes, Paul is being active. Paul is being content. He is doing all things. He is learning how to face these things. But once again, God, Christ, is working in him. It is Christ at work. So as John Piper describes this, this is Paul acting out the miracle that God is doing. It's beautiful. So verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Praise God. Paul finds his strength for resting in God in any circumstance in life through Christ who strengthens him. Now, this is not a carte blanche promise that whatever hard thing we want to do, God will just strengthen us to do. Let me perhaps give you an example. So imagine you sign up for a half marathon. You get the idea? It seems like a good idea. Everyone's doing it these days. Go run a half marathon. Uh, and you neglect to train. You just don't have enough time to train. But you're still going to run the race. And you get 100 meters down the course, and you start rethinking your life choices. You start wondering, why do people even pay money for this anyway? And then, because you are reading Philippians with your church, you remember the verse. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then you speed up. And you finish the race. And you win first place. Right? That's how it works. That's not what this verse is teaching us. This is not an an empty check meant to inspire you for whatever you want to do. We must read this verse in context. So look down at your Bibles. When Paul says, I can do all things, in verse 13, the all things here mirrors the every circumstance of verse 12. Do you see that? Or look back up to verse 11. The all things, every circumstance, and whatever situation of verse 11. They're parallel, building on each other. So this is the idea that Paul is saying. He's saying, regardless of the circumstance, give me any circumstance in all of life, all things, whatever the circumstance, in Christ, I have the power to be content in Christ. I can be content in all things, in every place, whatever I face. Because of Christ's work through me, through Christ, in me, I have the power to face hardship, and I find my need met in Christ. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? You say amen. So let me give you a better illustration. Forget about the race. Imagine you're a member of a church in Florida, let's just say. But uh, let's just say you're a member of church instead of the East Coast, you're over on the West Coast. 
and, and imagine that a, a category five hurricane comes your direction. And let's just say it hits your church directly and destroys your building and destroys your home and the homes of most of your congregation. And the congregation that stayed faces 10 to 15 foot storm surges coming across your community. And all of your church's staff members become homeless overnight. And your, your personal belongings, your memories, your homes, your pictures, everything you had to your name are all, is all destroyed in a matter of hours. Everything you own fits in the back of your pickup truck. Friends, I'm quoting here from Pastor Jeremy Rinney, who is pastor of Sanibel Community Church right now. This is what they just faced about 30 days ago. They're facing now. I think it's the promise of verse 13. I think it's what's happening in verse 13, that we can all do all things through him who strengthens us, that allows Pastor Jeremy and Sanibel Island to be able to be content in God when all else is gone. Here's an excerpt from a letter he wrote to his church from a hotel bedroom two days after the hurricane. Just one short excerpt. He is quoting from Psalm 46, and he says, God is our helper, who's always with us in times of trouble. Trouble comes and goes. Hurricanes pass, but our helper never changes or leaves us. Even when our future is uncertain and our lives have been completely overturned, we know these things about God. He is almighty. He is eternal, and he loves us. Paul says we can find our strength to rest in God in, in every circumstance of life through Christ who strengthens us. Well, we should move on. My second point today, which I'll spend less time on, concludes the second half of this passage. It concludes the letter for us. And here we see number two, the fruit of partnership. The fruit of partnership. See, Paul is content as he's writing this letter. In a real sense, he has his needs met in Christ. But he doesn't want this church to misunderstand and think that they, have, that they shouldn't have sent off Epaphroditus with this gift. He doesn't want them to undervalue their partnership as the means that God uses to advance the gospel. And so what we have in these remaining 10 verses of this letter is, is a brief encouragement of partnership in the gospel's advance. We'll walk through it quickly. We see first the responsibility of the partnership. In verse 14, they shared in his trouble. Verse 15, they entered into partnership. Verse 15, again, they gave gifts and they received from Paul's ministry. Verse 16, they sent him help for his needs twice. Verse 18, they gave a full payment. They sent a gift to be sure that Paul was well supplied. This Philippian church bore the responsibility of the gospel moving forward. And Paul says, verse 14, that this was kind of them to do. It was the right thing to do. He had left Philippi, Macedonia is the area, and other churches didn't help him. 
But then, again, he, he doesn't want them to think that he's after the money. So even though it's a kind thing to do, it's, it's the partnership in the gospel that he's excited, he's excited about. And so second, we see, we see the goal of partnership. The goal of partnership. And, and that is verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So Paul seeks spiritual growth that brings fruit. Lives transformed by Jesus Christ. This reminds me of, of Philippians 1.11, where we studied several weeks ago that they, he prays that they may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He wants this fruit to increase to their credit. As one commentator points out, Paul is actually here adopting financial language to describe this gospel growth. So all the accountants in the room get excited. This is what's happening. He's talking like an investment manager, and he desires to see increasing profits and daily compounding interest and accumulating dividends for the, for the Philippians' account. He sees this as their investment. He's working for spiritual growth, which the Philippians have invested in. This is just a beautiful picture of this, this web of activity of how God is working to advance the gospel. The Philippians give the support. Paul serves the church to see it grow in the fruit of righteousness. And then the fruit is credited back to their account. So what does he mean that it increases to your credit? I think it's that God is pleased in their obedience in, part, in partnership together. Because that's what we see in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This language here is language of a fragrant offering. Harkens back to Leviticus, a book which many in our, our 9 a.m. class are, are working through right now. 17 times in the book of Leviticus, these offerings are referred to and explained to be to God as a fragrant aroma, a, a pleasing aroma to God. The picture is that the people come and they, they present their offerings that were being sacrificed, whether a grain offering or a, a peace offering or a burnt offering. And, and as it was given from the people to God, it brought before God this, this pleasing aroma. He was happy to receive it from his people. So catch what's happening here now in Philippians. This is how we understand our giving, by the way, and what's happening when we partner together in the gospel. From the eyes of man, this Philippian church was merely putting money in an offering plate. But from the eyes of the missionary, this church was investing in the gospel. And in the eyes of God, this was a, an offering, a, a fragrant sacrifice to God. They were coming and, and putting their sacrifice on the altar, and it was pleasing to God. Friends, doesn't this just transform the way that we give? Our giving to God is not uh, done out of compulsion, it's not done out of guilt. It's an investment in the gospel going forward. It's, it's a low-risk investment option that has a high yield of return, doesn't it? 
Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Our giving, when we do it in worship to God, is a pleasing aroma to God. He receives it as an offering. It's not because he needs your money, but because he's pleased by seeing you worship in this way. And he will supply your need as you give. That's where we finally land in verse 19. We give sacrificially because God is gloriously sufficient to provide. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here we have the promise of this partnership. What a glorious promise. God promises to meet our needs. God will supply. Now, let me just pause here. How should we understand this promise? What's happening? Because if we've learned anything from the first half of my sermon, first half of this passage, we've learned that it cannot mean that God always gives us what we want. There are times that we don't face plenty. He doesn't promise us ease and abundance all the time. I think the key is in the first paragraph. If you look back up at verse 11, Paul was able to say that he was not speaking of being in need. And then verse, in verse 12, he still admitted that he was in need. How does that fit together? What we saw was that God promised to give him strength, to give him contentment. So he's not in need because God is giving him contentment, although his hands are empty. And so now in verse 19, how will these Philippians be supplied in their need? God will give them everything they need to be content in Christ. Verse 19 is a parallel to verse 13 for those who are tracking along. God will give you everything you need to be satisfied in the riches of Jesus Christ. Oh, the riches of Jesus Christ. Verse 19 is a glorious promise. He has promised to supply all we need. How, verse 19? According to his riches, in glory, in Christ Jesus. Romans eleven thirty-three. Oh, the depth of the riches of God. The riches of Christ are most clearly seen in the gospel. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. We read there that you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though Christ was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you in your poverty might become rich. If you're not a Christian here today, here's what Christians believe. We believe that in our sin, we are bankrupt before God. We believe that we owe a debt in our sin that we could never repay. But in Christ, he is, Christ is rich in his righteousness and his goodness. And the, the gospel, the good news of what Christ does for us when he dies on the cross and rises again is that he gives us his riches. He gives them to us freely. We don't earn them. He gifts them to us. So as Richard Sibbs says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. His, his riches come bountifully to our account. When he died, he 
paid our debt, Colossians said. So all of his righteousness, all of his riches that are his as the second person of the Godhead are freely transferred to our account before God. And all of our debt, all of the sin that we have committed against God is transferred to Christ. But you must come to Christ in faith. You must look to him in faith to believe that he is offering this and that it is yours. You must repent of your sins. I invite you to do this today. If you do this, if you find your contentment and your satisfaction in Christ alone, then verse 19 is true of you. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. We should conclude. Paul ends this section with the bond of partnership. He sends greetings. He, he greets the saints. He passes on greetings from the brothers and sends greetings from Caesar's household. He asks that God's grace would be with them. There's this, this giant web of gospel partnership that just continues on. And then he finishes the letter. And it's a bit like he began. Look at verse 21. It should bring back memories for us. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Just like we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, if you remember this a couple months ago, he points the church to remember that they are found in Christ Jesus. Everything about them is clothed in him. This is what we've seen, isn't it? They have encouragement in Christ. They're able to say, to live is Christ. Their lives are worthy of the gospel of Christ. They look to Christ, who endured death on a cross, then was highly exalted. They count everything as loss, chapter 3, that they may gain Christ. And then they press on toward the upward call in Christ Jesus. They rejoice in Christ last week because Christ is at hand. They are in Christ Jesus. May the same be true for our church. Father God, we, we praise you for the riches that are ours and are abundant in Christ Jesus. I pray that our church would be found in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that you would give us a deeper and truer and more alive union with Christ Jesus as we experience the riches that are ours in him. Father, I pray on behalf of anyone here who is wondering if they are in Christ. Lord, would you allow them to think well about that today? Not out of pressure, but, but out of the importance of where their life rests. Father, we pray that you will be glorified in our church as we live together in Christ Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.